0: From Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And from our secondary standards statement out of the 25th chapter of the confession Uh, There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. I feel that the uh, matter of church history presently uh, is a sort of like a, a good news, bad news joke. <laughs> uh, on the one hand, you have historians coming to you and saying to you, well, I've got some very, very good news for you. And uh, they haven't as much as completed their presentation. When you have uh, those uh, uh, raising their voices and saying, oh, I'll have some very, very bad news for you. There are two uh, radically divergent views of uh, what is going on presently uh, in the church. One uh, very optimistic, the other uh, quite pessimistic. (coughs) I want to speak about uh, those uh, perspectives with you in this uh, final lecture for this morning. Some are very positive, as I've said. They uh, point out to us that the church in the 20th century is experiencing remarkable, if not unparalleled, resurgence and expansion. I'm not going to uh, bore you with statistics. Uh, Statistics are probably well-near worthless anyway uh, because everybody seemingly fudges with them. But uh, anyway, there are some general trends that uh, people who are uh, optimistic, very positive about uh, our present circumstance, there are some uh, general trends that they put in front of <clears> them. <throat> they point to the mass movements Uh, In Central and South America. They point out the rapid uh, uh, growth of the church uh, in that region of the world. They point to the rapid growth of the church in Africa, and uh, though we are not as confident about the situation in Asia, especially China they are also pointing in that direction. There is the fact that there has been the astounding, the astounding events of this last year, and to the amazement of many, the survival of the church in Eastern Europe, And that church playing a significant role in the recent political reversals. Our time has also witnessed the resurgence of evangelicalism and uh, fundamentalism, particularly in the United States and uh, These movements have gathered strength to such an extent now that they rival, if not surpass, the strength of the old line or mainline churches. It is not strange to find some suggesting parallels to what we find in Revelation 11 and uh, the uh, history recorded there for us of the two witnesses. They were slain, you know, and uh, laid out in the street, but then uh, miraculously they, they come to life again, and that by the action of God. Well, <clears throat> the uh, evangelical and fundamentalist phenomenon of our time, as has been stated, their strength to such a point now that uh, they rival, if not surpass, the strength of the old line or mainline churches. Fundamentalism was declared dead after the 30s. Uh, irrelevant, uh, shuffled off into a corner, a quaint consideration at best, but hardly an influence in. The life and uh, the development of uh, our nation any longer. Uh, Evangelicalism came out of nowhere. And to the surprise of many, in 1976, uh, the bicentennial of the Declaration of of Independence and birth of our nation, uh, 1976 uh, was itself dubbed the Year of the Evangelical. You may recall uh, that the banner spread across the national news magazine. But consider the situation even further. Presently, no American church historian, worth his salt, worthy of respect, can uh, ignore the uh, movement of uh, fundamentalism and evangelicalism and uh, uh, remain in a uh, seat of honor within any institution in this country. Presently, no American church historian can maintain his respectability without a growing mastery of both evangelicalism and fundamentalism. Uh, historians raised within these traditions uh, increasingly have become the trendsetters, the trendsetters in their trade. I think of two particularly that have had close association with the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, George Marsden and Mark Noll. But looking then from the general scene to the particular, moving from a general consideration of the state of the church to a consideration of Calvinism particularly, more significant to Wass is the fact that Calvinism itself has proven quite virulent. Some would suggest to us that in our century we have witnessed a renewal of Calvinist vitality. This has to do somewhat with what Louis Promsma has called the the back-to-the-sources movement. There has occurred in our time a renewed study and interest in the 16th century that brings to the fore certain Calvinist advantages. Let's think of that 16th century world again for a moment. Actually, in that world, there were two worldviews in conflict. There was the... Catholic worldview, and there was also the uh, Islamic uh, worldview. But into this situation, there came that remarkable and monumental upheaval. Lutheranism (coughs) was dubbed the Germanic Revolt. It was looked upon as a corrupt Catholicism. And uh, when Rome made its final assessment, it saw that Lutheranism was no real threat to her and her institutions. So we have this situation in the 16th 16th century, the 1500s. The clashing of two world views. Catholicism on the one hand, Islam on the other, and into this situation there comes this upheaval. Luther is responsible initially for that upheaval, but in the end, the Church of Rome judges that Lutheranism is no threat to her. It's merely a provincial revolt. It offers nothing more than a corrupt form of Catholicism. Actually, Calvinism proves to be the greater provocation. This is what Hilary Belloc says. Now, I don't know whether I have to introduce you to Hilary Belloc. He is a Roman Catholic 20th century historian, and he is rabidly Roman Catholic. In fact, he is still uh, looked upon as the master advocate of Catholic Europe contending that, of course, uh, the dissolution of the medieval world was the worst thing that could have ever happened. Uh, <clears throat> so, Hilary Belloc, a Roman Catholic historian, parts along. This is what he says. Calvin it was who set out with greatest lucidity and unparalleled energy to form a counter-church for the destruction of the old. He it was who really made a new religion wholly hostile to the old one. So Calvinism enters as another worldview, pressing to work itself out and assert itself as forcefully as Catholicism had, as Islam had. Now, what Calvinism professed at that time did add up to an advantage for it. For you see, Calvinism possessed an energetic approach to public life. Catholicism had a very energetic approach to public life. Islam had a very energetic approach to public life. The Catholicism, but rather uh, Calvinism, also now presented a very energetic approach to the public sphere, to public life. 20th century has been ripe <clears throat> in light of the manifest failures of various Protestant perspectives for a turn toward the thoroughness and the activism of the Calvinist position. Now, I want you to think about uh, some of the tragedies of the the 20th century. The indictment that was, uh, in fact, brought against the uh, German Lutheran Church in lieu of the rise Mm -hmm. of the third Reich, the inability of the church to address the uh, the times to address the issues to interject itself into the discussion in any meaningful way and of course this led to a great deal of uh, of uh, dissatisfaction on the part of many lutherans uh, not the least of which was dietrich bonhoeffer uh, and uh, out of that came then uh, a renewed energy, even within Lutheranism, to begin to speak uh, meaningfully to contemporary society, to the issues of the day. But at any rate, I think we realize that the 20th century has been right in light of the manifest failures of various Protestant perspectives, for a turn toward the thoroughness and the activism of the Calvinist position. Abram Kuyper is a pivotal figure in Calvinism's resuscitation, resurgence. Calvinism has come to the center of other movements as well. You think of Kuyper, he uh, being orthodox in his convictions. Well, as we move into the 20th century, Calvinism has revived as well under the banner of Neo-Orthodoxy. Have you thought of Neo-Orthodoxy as a, uh, as a Calvinistic uh, revival? Well, that's what was claimed, you know. It was claimed by Bruner and by Barth that they had rediscovered Calvin back to the sources uh, reminding you again of Lewis Promsman's statement. Back to the sources. Bart, Brunner then rediscovering Calvin. What about liberation theology? Everyone is excited uh, about uh, liberation theology one way or the other. Uh, the uh, theologian from Europe who is responsible in part is a fellow by the name of Moltmann. <coughs> Moltmann is a Calvinist, so he claims. The theology of hope that he represents has as its source a restudy of Calvin and his theology. Now you have these things, these movements, these phenomena on one side. You have them even in a radical way On the other side, you have people like Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson. They too, having been tremendously influenced by a resurgence of interest in Puritan Calvinist theology. Back to Calvin. Why? Because Calvin had a position with respect to public life and the movement of the church into the public sphere. In our own circles, we have been influenced by theonomists, by reconstructionists. Uh, This has had a tremendous impact. Once more, Calvin is at the root, you see. What about neo-evangelicalism? Many of those men responsible for the neo-evangelical movement were trained in Calvinism, you think of uh, Howard Ockengay, Harold Ockengay. Uh, he was a man who was trained at Westminster Seminary. You think of uh, Francis Schaeffer, who is sort of the uh, spokesperson for the neo evangelical cultural elite. <laughs> you know, be aware of the culture around you. Uh, once more, Calvin is uh, at uh, the ground floor. According to George Marsden, Calvinism is the dominant theological commitment of the rising constellation of believing scholarship. Uh, That, uh, despite what Clark Pinnock might say, he says that Calvinism is wasted, it's uh, Uh, gone it's uh, seen its glory days and uh, the future belongs to classical Arminianism but uh, George Mosden is telling us that uh, Calvinism is the dominant theological commitment of the rising constellation of believing scholarship it influences economic thought business thought ethical thought political thought it is Tremendously influential across the board in church life in remarkable ways. Certain features of Calvinism have, in fact, triumphed, even though they are not recognized as such. We've already spoken about how Calvinism has this active vision of the relationship of the believer to public life as well. <coughs> Calvinism has a view of church government that has virtually triumphed across the boards. It doesn't matter what kind of communion you're in. Is there any pure form of congregationalism today? Don't churches have boards or don't they have uh, uh, little groups that uh, answer at least Formally to a session? People who represent the congregation or are looked upon as representing Christ to the people in some form or other? Is there a pure hierarchy? Is there a pure hierarchical expression of ecclesiastical life? In this country, I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah, the principle of Calvinism has triumphed. Whether people want to admit it or not, they're all Calvinists. <laughs> there has been, then, this uh, rather astounding resurgence of Calvinism. <clears throat> I think of my of the town where I am presently ministering, Swickley, Pennsylvania, little town in western Pennsylvania. Um, I think I figured it out at one time. There are nine churches in that community, of which five have Calvinist roots, three of which are experiencing the greatest days they have ever experienced in their history. Our church isn't one of those. But. <laughs> Five churches, over half, have direct Calvinist connections. And three of those churches are experiencing the greatest days in their history. That is in terms of the money, the people, the programs, uh, the interests, that's what's uh, happening in my neck of the woods. Now, it's obvious that uh, we're not comfortable with all of the expressions of this research in Calvinism. <laughs> in fact, uh, uh, many of them uh, leave us quite distressed, and uh, we're not even hesitant to call some of the forms that have uh, raised their heads uh, heretical. But uh, uh, thing that's pointed out to us is that uh, that, uh, the church is alive and well. Uh, Calvinism even is alive and well. So here's the uh, the good news, uh, the good news part of the good news, bad news joke. (laughs) Well, having... uh, set that up for you. Now let's take the other side. <clears throat> as positive as these developments may be or may appear, there are others who are not as positive. Uh, they see a dismal panorama spread out in front of them. Maybe some of you get the Christian Observer. Uh, possibly you saw the interview uh, in that magazine with John Gershner, who has just left the PCUSA and is united with the PCA. Are there are any number of statements made in that interview by Dr. Gershner which indicate the state of the church is not good. At least that's his estimation of things. really, Dr. Gershner would not be satisfied with anything less than a an awakening comparable to what happened in uh, the 18th century in this country, uh, the Great Awakening, a revival of uh, the Calvinism of Edwards. And uh, that is, in fact, what he has set his heart upon, and he's uh, looking for that before he's willing to uh, state that uh, Uh, really we've entered into a more positive period. I'd like to present to you at this point two mirrors, one distant and one close at hand, that uh, are often uh, reflected upon uh, in order to uh, make it clear that things maybe aren't as... uh, Aren't as uh, positive as uh, some have suggested. The first near the distant one is uh, the medieval world. (coughs) Consider the following facts. First fact. I'll introduce you with a question. <clears throat> Who's the most popular theologian in the 20th century in America? Theologian, now. <laughs> I would say C.S. Lewis. the most popular theologian of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis. (coughs) C.S. Lewis is a medievalist. He is a medieval figure in a modern setting. C.S. Lewis is worshipped, put that in quotes, by many modern evangelicals (coughs) He is claimed by them. Do you know that C.S. Lewis did not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Evangelicals claim him nonetheless. In other words, there is an authority for Lewis that rivals the authority of Scripture. He is not willing to give to Scripture an unqualified position when it comes to authority. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's perfectly consistent with a medieval point of view. Did you know that C.S. Lewis believed in purgatory? It's true. A medieval doctrine. There are other indications that the... uh, the medieval world is reasserting itself. Uh, uh, Bill Heibel and a number of uh, Protestant clerics have revived morality plays, and that in deference to the regulative principle for worship. They've introduced them right into the sanctuary, our churches, right within the worship services of our of our churches. Do you know who Richard Mao is? M-O-U-W. For a long time, a uh, reigning figure at uh, Calvin College. He has now moved to Fuller Seminary. He is a reigning warrior among many CRs, among many uh, astute, uh, sophisticated, Reformed people. In an article in the Reformed Journal... Two years ago, he confessed that he prayed to the Virgin Mary. And he advocated the practice to others. J.I. Packer, <clears throat> looked upon by many as a renowned theologian and a leader in the Reformed world, advocates reproachment with Rome. Did you know that? He is presently co editing a series with Peter Kraeft, a Roman Catholic, intended to bring out the common features that we can all agree upon. Religious art is heralded as a teaching aid, the church can't do without it. Sound familiar? That was a principle of the medieval world and the medieval church. In this setting, artists become prophets. Art displaces preaching. Evangelists launch holy crusades. Denominational and parachurch groups beg for comparison with medieval orders. In fact, that precise comparison is made by one writer, Jerry White, as he writes about the paraecclesiastical structures. We are witnessing increasingly a holy alliance within Protestantism of a scholasticism that seems to exhibit growing affinity with. Thomas Aquinas. What is John Gershner's apologetical position? He's a Thomist. (laughs) As was C.S. Lewis. On the one hand, then, we have an increasing holy alliance within Protestantism of a scholasticism that exhibits a growing affinity with Thomas Aquinas. On the other hand, we see an engagement with energetic mysticism that is given over to experientialism, together with swoons, visions, ecstatic utterance. those items part and parcel of medieval mysticism the religious market almost as if it were warehousing relics makes millions from religious paraphernalia it isn't Catholics buying this junk
1: it's Protestants
0: buying this junk and with it there has been a resurgence of superstition within Protestant ranks Protestants have become pilgrims not in the sense that I spoke of earlier this morning not on their way to heaven and glory (coughs) but on their way to conferences. (laughs) Where they can be purged, (laughs) feel good, and receive absolution from living saints. (laughs) Counseling centers have become the new confessionals. Mm. altar calls rededications char- charismatic initiations have become the new sacraments. with the purchase of books I want to talk to you about that later I have a few books to sell for. <coughs> purchase of books videos, cassettes the new form of indulgence laughter Words of reigning luminaries rival, if not displace, Scripture. Here's an anecdote for you. I'm sitting in a Reformed gathering, and the speaker is running through a list of marvelous biblical passages, and everybody is predictably dozing Why, it's just the word of God he's reading. And then he says, and quoting from Chuck Colson, everybody comes to attention. (laughs) You wouldn't want to miss what Chuck has to say. (laughs) Mother Teresa is canonized. Not by Catholics but by Protestants. Billy Graham greets the Pope and sees more Christ in him and nothing of Antichrist. Arm-in-arm Catholicized Protestants and Protestantized Catholics board buses for common causes in the interest of the Holy Moral Empire. Harold O.J. Brown, a man well-known in Protestant circles, calls for the resurrection of what some see as the medieval state. Rather than reaching the end of the Protestant era, as the theologian Paul Tillich suggests, we have rather entered, uh, according to Psalm now, the Protestant dark ages. Instead of reaching a point in which Protestantism has waned, have we not much more reached a point in which it is entrenched but in a way in which it becomes abundantly clear that we are increasingly distant from the original Protestant impulse. And as we are distant from that impulse, do we not draw nearer to that from which we originally separated? Back to Rome. We do well to listen to someone like Cornelius Van Til, since very few have pressed as hard and as consistently the striking similarities between classical, scholastic, Catholic theology and present day liberal and evangelical. That's one of the mirrors that's uh, liable to depress us a bit. There's another one closer at hand, the 19th century history of the Church in the United States, particularly as it relates to the Presbyterian Church. First of all, consider these general features. In both centuries, massive population growth and urban distress, major transformations due to industrial and technological innovation, centuries that end with communication revolutions, wars that radically divided the nation. Social upheaval over racial problems, women's rights, and substance abuse. Both centuries. We as Presbyterians may experience a great sense of deja vu when reviewing the events of the last century. Think of these parallels. I have them listed there for you on the board. (coughs) You might want to note them. There was the 1801 plan of union between the Presbyterian Church and the Congregationalists in New England. And this plan of union actually spelled disaster for the Presbyterian Church later on in the 19th century. There was an accommodating spirit at work there that brought together those various traditions. And despite the press into the century, that union uh, did not work. Compare with that what happened in uh, 1903 and 1906, again at the beginning of this century. There were changes made in the doctrinal statement of the Presbyterian Church, USA. There were changes to the Confession, and there were chapters added to the Confession on the Holy Spirit and on the love of God and missions. This was not only to accommodate the people within the denomination who were wrangling for confessional revision, but it also paved the way for a union with the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in 1906, a church which was overtly Armenian. Consider this fact. Both centuries in their fourth decades experienced splits. First of all, in the 19th century, 1837, there was the old school, new school split. This split occurred over the liberalizing tendencies of New England theology that were gaining access into the Presbyterian Church at that time that had been cemented in place by the 1801 Plan of Union. The old school was in fact the heritage at Princeton Cemetery came to claim and the foundation upon which Westminster Seminary was built and then the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Now turning to the 20th century, another split comes. This time 1936. The Church splits over the success that liberalism has had because of the gains registered through decisions like that of 1903 and 1906. Once more. (coughs) Another similarity. Both centuries following wars that severely divided the nation and the church the consummation of church unions and a triumph of practical theological concerns, the triumph of a concentration upon administrative concerns, and a triumph of a commercial perspective on the church. In the 19th century, you know the war that divided the country was, of course, the war between the states or the civil war. After the war, there was a tremendous amount of pressure put on the church for reunification. And that pressure came because, you see, the nation had experienced reunification. There wasn't any will left within the old school to resist. Why? Because they had already agreed upon a social question that took precedence over all theological matters. They agreed upon the union and the essential cause of the preservation of that union That was a religious interest, a religious concern. It was preached from the pulpits of the church. They had agreed about abolition, a social issue, and now after the war, the social issue becomes dominant. The political issue becomes dominant and supersedes in importance the theological question that had originally divided old school and new school. There were six votes against the reunion, one of which was cast by Charles Hodge. And the end of the matter is the new school theology that was brought back into the Presbyterian triumphed. <clears throat> now in this century, we have a war that severely divided this nation and the church, the Vietnam War. And afterwards there is the coming together again. And in that coming together again, the theological issues are submerged. Other matters become dominant. But I want to also point out to you something with respect to these other considerations. I don't mean here to speak ill of energetic faith-loving layman. I praise God for those who love the faith and pursue it with all of their energy. But in the 19th century, what was happening was there was the erection of the benevolent empire that was overseen by, I'll put this in quotes, enterprising marvels of the middle class. They were religious entrepreneurs and these individuals could not separate their concepts of business and management from the church of which they were a part. So the church was commercialized in a period of tremendous expansion, tremendous growth in the 19th century and after the Civil War, that accelerated tremendous growth everywhere. The churches were experiencing it too. But what happened was that these enterprising marvels of the middle class, now becoming the establishment, the yuppies of their day, took over the church, and the pattern for the church was completely and thoroughly Commercialized. That is one of the features that uh, a number of individuals are calling our attention to in our present circumstances. The church has become business, the church has become something other than church. It is an enterprise, we're in it for profit. We're in it to see the numbers posted on the board. We're in it to see the money come in and the project grow like any good business does. Well, after surveying the medieval world in the 19th century, parallels that we find, it's no wonder that some are distressed and even depressed. They point out to us now that the situation is a little bit different for us. For at least those who came to the end of the 19th century had Princeton to look to and had some stalwarts, had some remarkable theologians to fall back on. And they're suggesting to us now if we have no problem, and that we have no really great, stalwart, world-class theologians to fall back on. Well, you might think that uh, ending here would completely undo what I tried to do in the first lecture, so I... I can't stop here, of course, but must conclude with a further thought. Christ is king. He's still in the throne. We can make our comparisons. We can survey the scene. We can learn from these comparisons and these surveys. They can be helpful to us. They can alert us to dangers, they can wake us up, they can tell us that uh, uh, on the one hand we need to be a little bit more cheery than we are, or we need to be a little bit more sober than we are. But we need, of course, to remember that Christ is building his church. And he's building it in ways perceived by faith. In ways that demand the discipline of faith to perceive what is being done. So that where we are liable to gush over that which attracts the eye, we do better to be cautious, seeing that which lies beyond mere appearance where we are liable to despair over what seems hopelessly beyond repair, we must learn to see the heavenly Christ superimposing Himself upon our faltering, distressed people, thus training us to treat the church as we treat Christ Himself. And as we await his appearance in heaven. Let's pray. Our God, there may be those elements that drive us to be foolishly optimistic. There may be those elements that seemingly compel us to be foolishly pessimistic. But we ask, Lord, that we might not judge according to appearances, but judge the true judgment, that we might perceive things as they are in light of what you have done in Christ. May we delight in him. May we rejoice because he reigns. He is king. And may our hearts leap within us because we are his. And he has given himself to us. And because of this, Lord, we shall indeed persevere. Amen.